Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. I'm Rudy Fala, the founder of Voice of Fintech podcast, and this episode is hosted by amazing Vani Baumgartner. Welcome to another episode of Voice of Fintech. And today we will be talking to Mark Pencala, who is a VC, angel investor, entrepreneur, and fund advisor. He's recently started investing into startups via Minimal VC, which is his own investment vehicle. Mark, welcome. It's my pleasure, Vani, to be with you today. Wonderful. So we've been in touch in the past because we have some common people that we know, but there was something about you that I really loved from your LinkedIn profile. You talk about about life. Like It seems to me that you bring what you've learned in work really into life, so to speak. And you're, you talk about this, you write about this. Why so much passion in what you do? That's a good question. First, thanks, thanks a lot. I, I think there's like lots of things you learn along the way while you grow up. And there's not too many things you actually keep for a long while. I like to identify the things um, which will guide me through the rest of my life. And that's why I've started to put all of them once I find them into my LinkedIn profile. I think at the end of the day, it's not too many. It's 10 or 12 or maybe a little more. But over over the time, they not only became things which I like to remember, they became more or less principles which I um, use on a daily basis which kind of uh, remind me on certain moments, things uh, or experiences of the past. And I, I try to live by them, to be honest. And most of the time, it's not only things which come from my private life, but I, I can actually use them as well for my working life. So that's why I put them there. I think they're very important, at least for me. Wonderful. I would love to go a little bit into those 10 or 12 points um, later on in, the, in this podcast. But Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about your career. How did you start? How did you get into investments? I actually started way back as an entrepreneur. So I, whenever I was like a, a kid, I kind of thought I'm going to build a company at some point. That's weird. But I actually started doing so while I was um, end of high school. So I built my first company. was very lucky and fortunate enough uh, to not bankrupt that company. So this one worked <laughs> out and I happened to sell it. The second company was not that successful. That was actually the one where I was the first time in touch with venture capital. Mm-hmm. And as it wasn't successful, I tried to figure out uh, why it wasn't. And uh, one main point that got to my head was I, I picked up venture capital and I was very eager to understand on a deeper level how VCs work. Why do they give you money? What's good money? What's bad money? And what kind of things can VCs give you aside of money? Mm -hmm. So after that company didn't work, I I thought I I should join a VC in order to better understand how they operate because this will eventually make me a better entrepreneur. At least that was my thesis. So I was lucky enough to join a VC uh, a little more than 10 years ago, and I, I actually learned so many things. And back then I thought I'm going to stay for a year. So I stayed actually very long <laughs> compared yeah. to what I 
thought, which kind of enabled me to, to get a better view on not only how startups work, but of course, uh, how VCs operate and work. And I decided for myself to, to stay VC rather to uh, turn back to becoming uh, um, an entrepreneur. Okay. And this was your time with Mountain Partners, correct? That is correct. Yes. And you were working on a range of deals across different industries all around the world. And that was uh, probably the one thing which kind of kept me going and staying with that company. It's been a very enlightening time. And I was not only able to work in Germany, I, I worked in Latin America and Southeast Asia and the Middle East and India. And we've invested around the globe in early stage seed, pre-seed and Series A companies. We're very stage agnostic, to be fair, looking at that point, very industry agnostic and of course, regional agnostic. And uh, that made it so thrilling for me to, to get a very broad view on venture capital, especially like looking back when you start to compare how venture capital works in Latin America compared to Europe or to the US. Yeah. And this kind of helped me to put pictures, put the things into one picture. And I think it was the steepest learning curve I ever had so far. And I hope it uh, will still go on. So despite being industry and region agnostic, did you have a favorite industry and region? Yeah, to, to be honest, like over time, of course, I've seen multiple industries and verticals and uh, all of them uh, have something special for sure. But I can't match all of them with experience and knowledge I have. So, of course, there's certain things I, I don't know and I will never understand, I assume. But there's other things which not only, but I kept focusing on. And these are particularly fintech, proptech, insurtech, and e-health topics. And so as I've been focusing on these topics, I feel more and more comfortable over the past 10 years working with companies in, in these um, sectors and industries. Mm -hmm. And after so much time, obviously, you gather so much experience that you actually can help them on an operational basis. Wonderful. And you started Minimal VC. Has it been a year now? Yeah, it's almost a year. So happy anniversary. Uh -huh. But uh, it's been very exciting. It's, it was born out of my um, active angel investment. I've been uh, investing for privately, at least for almost five years. And so I started like every angel starts with very small tickets, very blunt and not actually knowing what I do. <laughs> Still, after doing VC for so long, you, you have the feeling and the hybrids that you actually do know what you do. Looking mm -hmm. back, well, I don't. I, I think <laughs> being at the right time with the right people at the right spot and having to invest into a company. So I do believe that you can leverage your experience and the don'ts and the best and worst practices. So you, you eventually become better, but there's a, a high, like a big chunk of what you do. And this is luck. And I, I'm trying to be fair and honest to myself, looking at the investments I've done, that it's not me being so smart, but it's me being at the right spot with the right people investing into a company where I have the feeling this makes sense at that point, at least. You mentioned that at the start, you weren't really sure about what you were doing. And yesterday I just had a conversation with a friend about the imposter syndrome. Have you heard of this? No, but I'm, I'm very keen to hear it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm not too sure either, but I think that's, an, that's something interesting. I think it's, it says something about people actually know what they're doing, but because they don't want to maybe give themselves that credit so they say that they don't know what they're doing when actually they are really good at what they do i think <laughs> that's actually interesting I, I wouldn't say that i absolutely have no idea what i'm doing yeah yeah sure uh, of course. There's, there's something else which i actually like looking at the investments i've done there's a term it's called serendipity if you find something mm -hmm. uh, you have not been looking for and mm -hmm. most of the time the, the best investments i've done so far i've surely not been looking for them I bumped into these people, uh, very smart entrepreneurs, nice. having an idea and 
I do lots of investments very much based on my gut feeling, like putting okay. the puzzle together, having the bird's eye perspective. Is this the right guy doing this kind of model in this industry? And is there actually an opportunity right now? As I said earlier, for me, there's three main components. It's the right people at the right time at the right spot. And yeah. there's been lots of companies like doing what successful companies are doing today, but they did it at the wrong time. So they happen not to work out. Right. That's why I'm trying to, to picture my world that there's a lot of luck to it. You can be the smartest VC if you have a bad timing, you're most likely going to lose your money. But we're like in a beautiful up market for the past 10 years. So it's almost hard to actually lose money. It's uh, like the monkeys on Wall Street uh, theorem. Like yeah. monkeys and they throw darts and they will probably better perform than most brokers. But if yeah. you're in an up market, it, it's not too hard to do so. Yeah. You talk about the importance of team centric when making investments. Can you yeah. expand on this? Absolutely. I, I think this is the core element of, of whatever I do is my gut feeling. Uh, when you operate and invest in early stage, uh, when you're industry agnostic, geographic agnostic, um, there's only one element you can purely look at, which is the team. But this is rather due to the fact that looking at pure numbers, when you um, build a company, it will take you eight to 10 years to turn it profitable. Within that eight to 10 years, you will probably iterate the business and revenue model four to five times. Mm -hmm. So it, it would be like stupid of myself to invest into a business model and to a market or whatsoever, when I exactly know before that company turns like profitable, successful, or can be sold, it will be mm -hmm. something completely different. Mm -hmm. So I rather tend to invest into the ability of people to see that change, to iterate accordingly, and to build a company which is like customer centric, unattached to the fact if it's a B2B or B2C company. And therefore, it must be the people building the company and having the ability to turn that company successful. And therefore, I kind of try to invest into serial entrepreneurs or people who have done it before with yeah. a very strong domain expertise matched with the right timing for the certain model they, they want to build. Mm -hmm. Why have you decided to call yourself minimal VC? Good question. I, I, I thought about this for fairly long, uh, looked up so many names and came up with crazy ideas. And then I crunched it down to the most essential part, what I would like to have working with a VC. And I, I, what I've seen over the years is that VCs are very inversive. So that they try to steer you in a certain direction. They distract you while you actually do the fundraising in terms of, hey, we have to do this and this um, on the legal side. So most of the time for lots of entrepreneurs, it's um, a very painful and distracting, not only in the actual fundraising, but as well after that. Mm -hmm. And I, I figured, of course, they, they have a reason why they do it this way. And I, I just thought for myself, I don't want to be this way. I, I want to be non-inversive. I want to be helping the entrepreneurs. I want to leverage what they do and enable them to be faster and better in what they do. So okay. this kind of uh, got me to the point, if I want to be something, I want to be minimal in terms of minimal inversive, leverage what they have. And this is like a, a bilateral place. So if they don't want it, I'm not going to force uh, them to work with me, but if they're asking for help, if they need help, if, if there's something I can add in terms of value, I'm the first person to do. And I hope that if you ask the 20 entrepreneurs I invested in, that all of them will actually tell you exactly that. Nice. How do you describe your risk tolerance? Oh, it's, it could possibly not be higher. Looking at the hard facts, it's early stage without industry focus and it's around the world. There is no riskier asset class than venture capital. And this is the peak of venture capital. 
moving right. into that part of VC. I, I think, of course, I try to de-risk and I try to understand the risk-reward balance. And at the end of the day, I have so many talks about valuation and entering a company at either three or nine million. This is completely irrelevant for me. I just look at the return profile. So, the, the, of course, there's a certain risk associated to each and every company, and there's a certain return uh, profile, which you can as well associate or at least estimate when you look at that company. And this has to be balanced. So I rather invest into a company in a pre-seed round on a 50 million valuation, having the, like, possibility to become a $5 billion company, then I want to invest into a company with a 2 million valuation, which just has the capability to turn into a 10 million uh, valuation company. Mm -hmm. So I, I think this has to be balanced very well. And of course, nobody can tell. And of, of course, I can't either. But I can try to um, approximate the market. I can try to understand the ability of the entrepreneurs and um, the people around them. And of course, the actual setup and put this into the context and derive from there is the potential there. And if it's not there from day one, I'd be wrong, then I am simply not going to invest because it doesn't make sense to me. So uh, in general, it's very high. Has there ever been a case where you've been like in the due diligence process for so long, you're ready to make um, this investment and then at the end it doesn't happen? I'm sure yes, but like why? It, it's funny. My answer would be like looking at all the investments I've done professionally and as an angel, that there was a tremendous change over time. In the beginning, I, I looked at companies and it took a while until I got to a point where I could say, I want to do it or I don't want to do it. Mm -hmm. Looking at companies today, I usually know this is something which is very dangerous as well due to the fact that you go after something um, which is called confirmational bias. So yeah. the moment where I identify that I actually want to do the investment, I'm going to look for the, the confirmation I need in order to do it. I'm going to have blind spots on all, all those things, which should be red flags telling me, Mark, don't do this. But at the end of the day, I, I think if you like gather so much experience over so much time, you have to listen to your gut feeling more than to hard facts. And looking at the market, you have to have big bets. You have to do all the crazy stuff everyone else would say, this is stupid, it doesn't make sense. Because these most of the time turn out to be the, the home runs. And looking at portfolio theory, you have to have these home runs. So you have to actually um, expose yourself to a certain risk where everyone says, no, this is too much, this is too crazy. And there's been a very interesting correlation I read about the other day that funds and portfolios, which have the highest default rates, so the most amount of companies in absolute terms, which actually go bankrupt, have the best performance. Oh, wow. There is an interesting explanation to that. Well, it's not interesting. It's pretty apparent if you think about it. These funds take more, taking more risks. They have a via, like, higher divergence between like, the potential of a company yeah. and the actual um, risk uh, they associate themselves to. And um, looking at portfolio theory again, well, you have to have one portfolio outlier in order to be an okay to good fund. But if yeah. you have two, all of a sudden, you are outstandingly well. Mm. And these funds have high default rates, but they have mm. as well uh, a high exposure on outliers, and that makes them successful. And I try to replicate that idea of taking huge risk into my portfolio in order to have the ability to outperform the market. Understood. In your website, you talk about 10 years, 10 principles, one of them being intimately aware of your biases, which you've just mentioned. Can you share a story on bias? Absolutely. I Actually, the second investment I did 
turned out to not work. It's the only write-off I have as of today. And I met the founders and I was like very, very impressed by the founders, former Apple VPs and like very experienced, super senior guys with this visionary idea of building this hardware company where you have a kind of set of headphones, which just, they looked so amazing. And I was just like, I had the, the, absolutely that confirmational bias aspect. I was uh, impressed by the guys. I'm, I was impressed by the product. And I didn't think two or three steps ahead of how hard it is to build a hardware product, how hard it is and capital intense to do it in the US, how difficult and um, competitive that market is. And I, I went with the flow, looked at the cap table, looked at the companies uh, or the VCs which were invested, and you had all the big names. And I said, this is a safe bet. This makes all the sense in the world. And I totally get it. And my, my peers uh, back then said, no, don't do it. This is stupid. Doesn't make sense. You will lose your money. And I just thought, no, it's a fantastic idea. And I, I just looked for confirmation on the things which, you know, which I thought I have to have. Yeah. And I totally ran into like something which turned out to be completely stupid. It took me years to understand. But back then, I was just driven by my confirmational bias. And as I said, that's why uh, I mentioned earlier, that makes it tricky. I, I try to decide upon my gut uh, feeling within five minutes. Uh, and this is driven by my confirmational bias. Mm -hmm. The comparison, though, is back then, I didn't have the experience. But today, I do assume or at least hope that I have sufficient experience to actually not run into this trap again. Okay. You talk also about the importance of networking. Yeah, I think um, looking at not only startups, but as well VCs, it, the highest value is a network by far. There's lots of things uh, you can help smart entrepreneurs with on an operational basis, but this usually only lasts for maybe a year, maybe a little more if they're not too experienced or serial entrepreneurs, because then they're so deep into their own topic that you can't add too much value. What you basically do on a like board level, advisory level whatsoever is prevent that they do stupid mistakes. But helping them operationally, like on the core element of the product, doesn't usually happen. So the, the most important aspect, what you bring to the table as a VC, a set of money, depending on your check size, is definitely your network. Mm -hmm. And by network, I don't necessarily mean that other VCs and other, I don't know, institutional investors whatsoever who can provide money, but as well the, the core people or the key people who can change the whole trajectory of a company. And I've seen this several times that some people bring just this one lead or introduce the company to this one guy or uh, other VC firm, and they change everything in terms of that's the company or the person who brings um, the person who actually creates the exit, or it's the right person to drive the marketing. And uh, all of a sudden that company grows tremendously fast, mm -hmm. or it's another co-founder. Mm -hmm. So many things. But I think the broader the network and the more close the network is, so I mean, triple A network, people you really know, people yeah. uh, you can actually call and, you know, ask for help, this drives value in companies. And that's why I'm very intrigued and actually live by this to build my network. And I've tried over the past years to actually reach out to one or two people on a weekly basis, which I've never spoken to. Nice. But to know them, to find out if there's a sweet spot, something we can do together, something we can learn from each other, something uh, we can share. And actually, it, it happened to be a very good idea looking back to do so, because after a while, I've like just broadened my network. And not all of them I speak to regularly, of course. Yeah. Some which became valuable partners or people I work with or people I tend to invest with. Yeah. So um, here again, there's some lucky shots. And of course, 90% you never speak to again, which is fair. I and these people that you approach, one or two new people per week, this is what, via LinkedIn? 
Yeah, to, to be honest, it must be probably 90% via LinkedIn. Of yeah. course, by, by accident, people just introduce you to people. Hey, Mark, you have to speak to this guy or to this uh, girl or to uh, this VC. So this happens a lot as well, or people mm -hmm. just asking to be connected uh, yeah. to me. So that's fine as well. Yeah. But proactively, I try to look for like interesting profile, which kind of match what I do. Yeah. This doesn't necessarily have to be VCs, as I said. Mm -hmm. People will say, hey, it could be interesting to speak to them because I can either help them or vice versa. Yeah. Your track record. I understand it's three unicorns, two sunicorns and one outstanding bet. Tell us about this. And I was going to say, what do you think you owe your success to when it comes to investing? But you've already mentioned that it's a lot about your gut feeling. Yeah, uh, indeed. Here again, I think I've been very lucky to be at the right spot with the right people when I started investing. And usually it takes quite a while. So your investments materialize into any kind of exit, if it's a cash on cash or cash on share exit. I was actually lucky enough that most of my very early investment materialized into exits and uh, unicorns in this case. I hope I can replicate this. I think that the big art and venture capitalist keep on reinventing yourself and adjusting your investment thesis to stay successful. And I think it's a very broad term, how you define success. But to be very honest, there is no secret sauce I could mention or disclose. And if there would be one, I, I would be happy uh, to disclose it. If I would have to crunch it down on what I think it is, definitely taking the risk. So yeah. saying yes to things everyone else would say no to without being stupid, just being trying to being as rational as possible to balance risk and reward. And the other one is definitely network. Smart people, great people bringing great opportunities to you because you do the same for them. Yeah. It's a, it's a give and take approach. And I think these two together make, I don't know if, if it's the difference, but they at least give you the opportunity to become successful. And I think at the end of the day, uh, being successful, as I said, it's very hard to define what is success because let's do the calculation after uh, I'm like done <laughs> start to divest my whole portfolio if it made sense. Yeah. As of did so far. Okay, so talking about your investment thesis, what is it like now versus a year ago, three years ago, five years ago? How has it changed if it has? Yeah, uh, it has changed. It started the same way as it is right now. I started with gut feeling. I ended with gut feeling. The main difference is my gut feeling today is back with experience and knowledge and mistakes I've done. Back then it wasn't. So right. uh, back then it was just stupid gut feeling. Today, I would say it's uh, <laughs> experience-based gut feeling. Nice. Uh, and that's what's changed over time, definitely. Okay. And of course, there's lots of passive things you don't really think or consider, but your brain, or at least my brain, matches lots of patterns and heuristics. So if I see a certain pattern where I have been successful before, I, of course, tend to replicate like an investment into uh, mm -hmm. again is totally dangerous. Uh, uh, sometimes it will not make sense. Yeah. Um, looking at numbers, um, I'm super numbers driven. I just try to outperform the market in terms of um, returns. And this is something you can only do if you understand how the market works. And looking at portfolio again, it's a home run game. So you have to have this one crazy investment and it will make up for all the losses you have. Yeah. Uh, and this is, I, I keep this on top of my head and whenever I invest, does this company have the potential to pay back everything which I invested as of today? Mm -hmm. If it's not the case, I would probably say no. Right. You describe yourself as a number cruncher, a PowerPoint painter, a strategy shaper and a product maverick. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? 
Yeah, um, uh, coming from entrepreneurial background, I uh, used to do this all the time. And working in the VC, I, I did as well. So it's not uh, that I only been running numbers. I, I built presentations and I, I worked with so many smart um, entrepreneurs on products or actually helped them on certain things on these. And here again, doing this around the world in different markets, different stages and industries, you get a very broad perspective on things, um, how they work or what works, what doesn't work. And uh, this kind of helps me. And I, I try to not stay away from all those operational things. I want to be as hands-on as possible. And uh, I have a very strong intrinsic motivation to do, which is very simple. And I have to be very honest with that. I constantly learn from those smart entrepreneurs. Uh, at the end of the day, the best thing a VC can be is a wingman. So we're mm -hmm. never going to be in a driver's seat. We're never going to run the show with the guys giving you money and giving you access to certain things such as network. But the smart people and uh, the people who actually build and create, I, I want to learn. Learning means not only like sitting there and listening, but as well giving back what they maybe don't have at that point. So I, I try to still be a number cruncher and run their numbers, go through the financials, tell them what I think they should adjust. Same on if they create um, their equity story, build decks for the fundraising. I try to help them to prevent the classic mistakes and give them the five to 10 things which I've learned along the way, how they can improve this because there's certain, not, not strategies, but storytelling aspects or like structures and formats which you should have simply. Yeah. And this is something which I try to live as well. What were the three unicorns you invested into and what is the one outstanding bet? The, the one outstanding bet, I'm going to start with that one, is something, it's a space company, it's called Destinos, and I'm, I'm very much in love uh, with this big bet because it's literally out of the world. And just the moment I saw it the very first time, I was like deeply in love uh, with the potential of this. And it already says on the very first slide on the deck, a world where this is, doesn't exist. And what they do is basically they've created a, or they are on the verge to create a technology to transform express delivery. And uh, they give an example. You need an express delivery from Berlin to Hong Kong. Just imagine you can do it in one hour. So they're building a technology for logistics or like e-logistics and uh, to transport things from A to B. And it's a very smart serial entrepreneur who has built companies before, uh, turned them into unicorns and actually listed them. And I think he has like everything it needs to build like this kind of company. And if I show this to people, everyone's this is out of the world and uh, it's, it's not going to work. And that, that's one of the big bets, though. So it's exactly the right scope of what you have to have into your portfolio in order. Mm. If it works, it's going to be so outstandingly impactful on your uh, portfolio performance. Yeah. And on the other side, there's, there's like several in my portfolio, which I actually happen to invest in on a very early stage. And the, one is in the space company and the other one um, is more or less a copy cat, but I would say an approved one from Germany and it's been launched in Mexico and it turned out to be the second most valuable company in whole Latin America after Nubank and it's Kavak. So I invested into the company in a, on a business plan where there was just like some smart guys saying, Hey, we want to build this here and it's going to be crazy and good. And I said, yes. Okay. Amazing. Most satisfying investment you've made? All of them. I, I think all of them have a certain beauty. And looking back, I learned from all of these entrepreneurs, great things on how to do stuff and what not to do, of course. The most satisfying, it's very hard to tell. And there's some companies where I'm just very much in love with the founders uh, because they're very charismatic, smart people. There's others where I'm just very much in love with the return they're creating or the value they're creating for the investors. And there's others 
where they just build like products, which I totally feel and see that there's a need for them. So I couldn't even answer it and crunch it down to one company. And uh, that's the most satisfying. It would be too hard. Is there a book or a movie that you would recommend to the listeners of this podcast? Movie, I, I didn't, I wouldn't have one on top of my head, but what I personally liked reading that's a while ago, actually split scaling from Reed Hoffman. I think it's an all time classic. Every founder should read and as well, every VC should read on how to build like fast and massive or valuable companies. And I really enjoyed that, that book because there's so many smart insights, which are parent from time to time. But you, if you read it and you're just like, think about it, yeah, you, you should keep this on top of your head at all times. And I would definitely recommend it to, to everyone who's like building a company or thinks about building a company. On your LinkedIn profile under About Life, you wrote, be careful what you're asking for. You might get it. Yep. It, it's so funny, like people to have lots of things, not only material things, but like success or money or whatsoever. And uh, sometimes they don't think about the causality, what comes along with that. Not everything which seems to, to be all fancy and cool and something you would envision to have turns out to be exactly that. And I, I think it's very important to really think about uh, what you're asking for, because when you get it, you might be disappointed or overwhelmed or you can't handle it. And that's why this is one, surely one principle I've seen. It, it's like be, when people become millionaires because they win the lottery, 90% of them tend to be broke after five years. Yeah. Because they can't handle it. They can't work with this. They, they, they feel overwhelmed that people from their closer or not uh, like farther come to them and ask for money. So yeah. it's not only having the money. There's a lot of things you will not like having the money. Yeah. This is something you surely don't see before you have it. I like the one where you mentioned working makes you money, but travel makes you rich. Yeah, it has a very simple background. Looking back at the time when I went to high school and university, of course, I tried to learn a lot, but putting, getting back to the hard facts, I've been traveling more than I actually went to university and studied. And I think that was one of my biggest bets. And it paid off. It taught me more than university could potentially have taught me. That, that was very important for me because it was a tipping point in my life when I thought, okay, I've been traveling and I was always fascinated by one simple fact, why the same problem solved in a different way, depending where you are. Mm. And so the more I traveled, the more I saw that there's lots of ways to solve, fix a problem or to approach it. And uh, that kind of broadened the, uh, my view on things. And that's why I tend to say that. Have you always known that this would be where you are at this point in your life? At no time. Uh, I, I really love what I do. I, I wake up in the morning being excited, let's say, nine out of ten days. The last one is just a Monday. Um, <laughs> no, jokes aside, I, I, I never thought or envisioned that I'm going to be where I am today. I'm very lucky and, and fortunate and very happy that I can do what I do. There's nothing more fun to work with smart people who have great ideas and be a very tiny part of their journey and see how they do it and learn from them and maybe be the one person who gives them that one thing and the, the last ingredients they're lacking to become successful. So therefore, it's something I'm very happy about. You see yourself continuing doing what you're doing now, yes? Like for a good while? I, I, I hope so. I, I hope yeah. I never have to do something else. Let's uh, reconnect in a couple of years, but yeah. <laughs> at least it's on my map to, to keep what I do for the next weeks, months and years. And maybe it's, it's going to change in the core, 
but definitely it w I will stay in the industry, uh, whether on the side of being an angel or an investor or on the other side, being an entrepreneur. So that's definitely something I, I hope to be able to do for the next years. Wonderful. I think we've covered quite some wonderful topics uh, here and I'd like to thank you very much for your time. But before we end, anything else that you would like to add? No, I think uh, you squeezed out everything you could potentially uh, <laughs> do in 45 minutes. It's amazing speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time and asking so many good questions. Wonderful. I prepared a little better, but you received the most honest answers. Wonderful. I did want to ask, what were the first two companies that you built? And how old were you then? The very first company I actually built was when I was 17. I was very naive. I was very young. I didn't know what I've been doing. It's been an offline company where I started to sell goods, which I bought in Italy on eBay. And from there, I built a wholesale. And from there, I built like stores. And I did so many mistakes that I actually back then had a reason to study business. So that was a very <laughs> important one. The second one was a software as a service solution for sales and coupon marketing. Back then at the time where Groupon started, we wanted to go the exact opposite way, not force merchants to do something in terms of coupons and so on. We just wanted to give them the platform and form of a software as a service solution. So they're enabled to actually create marketing campaigns, distribute them and actually learn about the customers. Okay. And so they could be not more opposite. Yeah. Than yeah. Wonderful. Mark, thank you again. Pleasure having you on the Voice of Fintech podcast and wish you the very best. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye. All right. Bye. All right. Have a nice one. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.